Hello everybody and welcome back to the Ghoul Guide Association. You may have been wondering where we've been. Did take a couple weeks off because it was summertime and yes goths don't generally go hand in hand with summertime but it's been one hell of a year so I decided to take a holiday. <laughs> I was just gonna say we've been hibernating in our caves but all right yeah fine you Logan went on holiday. <laughs> I did go in a cave though like I did literally go in a cave because yeah. <laughs> it was really hot and I was like yeah let's go to these caves it's cold in these caves so <laughs> technically true. <laughs> but yeah we uh we took a much deserved couple weeks break um because this this has been quite the year we've had a lot on our respective plates so we thought you know what we've <laughs> we've done remarkably well for the last couple of months at making episodes so let's take a break we did forget to mention that we were taking a break well, we did for our avid listeners our regular listeners we did mention that we would be taking a break yes, but then we, did. we forgot to mention that anywhere else <laughs> <laughs> we also took a longer break yeah. than expected. <laughs> but. but you know, we're back and uh we will be coming back with our promised witches series, mm-hmm. um, which is our Halloween content. We're gonna be talking about the history of witchcraft and um its importance to not just the Gothic, um, but pop culture and thinking about how the Gothic, you know, bleeds into so many aspects of pop culture. But for this episode, uh, or this meeting of the association, we are actually going to be doing some book recommendations. We got a message while we were in Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh, sorry, Dundee, actually, for the Gothic Women Conference, which went went very well. Thank you to everybody that came. Uh, We got a message from one of our listeners, Ollie, on Instagram, who asked if we could recommend some Gothic reading for them. And I showed the message to Mary, and Mary said, we can do that. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> what we've decided to do is we are each going to give two recommendations, one from the classic Gothic era. Often we call it like the, the early Gothic, which is usually considered to be the mid 1700s to the early 1800s. Although strong argument to say that much, much earlier literature is gothic particularly things like jacobean revenge tragedies they're not quite as fun to read as they are to watch though so we've gone for novels i think <laughs> i've assumed i actually don't know <laughs> i should have checked I, with you i bother of you to make that assumption <laughs> i guess we'll find out we'll find out yeah, yeah you very easily could have gone for something else but yeah we've both gone for a classic gothic text and a more modern gothic text and we might have a bit of an honorable mentions at the end a bit of a chat about how we pick our reading but we thought yeah that's quite a fun episode for our first meeting back so dr mary miss going what is your first gothic recommendation if you please okay so my first one i am going classic um and also i i have to apologize and just let you know that i'm cheating here and you're going to be getting a two for one um what? kind of in this recommendation <laughs> but but first of all this will, will surprise no one and I do have the books to hand so if you are watching on YouTube be prepared for the book covers as well um oh man I didn't think to get the books out to be fair all my books are in storage because yeah. I currently don't have my own home so I'm gonna use that excuse yeah yeah it, it's hard when you're living in a cave but we'll, we'll, we'll let you off <laughs> thanks my first one is um Matthew Lewis's The Monk I did not foresee this outcome. <laughs> but, uh, so 
if you have studied the gothic or if you listen to us and this won't be a surprise and you'll be thinking oh no this again but like for <laughs> everyone who who maybe doesn't read um kind of early gothic texts and if you like this is a, a what i would say your quintessential you must read this this is really great and i think as well what i like about it is that some of the like early gothic texts when when we read them like from you know as contemporary readers they can be a bit long and overly complicated whereas this novel so much happens in it like you will be I think it shocks even even readers today (laughs) um so yeah just I guess a little bit of discussion about it Matthew Lewis wrote this when he was 18 he wrote it in a couple of weeks which I think also adds to it being just completely batshit um uh, he was inspired by Anne Radcliffe, who is, you know, the great enchantress of, of Gothic literature. Mm-hmm. Um, although she was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Literally wrote a clap back. <laughs> yeah, she was horrified by his novel and did not like, <laughs> did not like what he had written. But basically, um, it has, I guess, two two kind of plots. So the main plot follows Ambrosio, who is the monk, the eponymous monk. Um and he is kind of holier than thou. Um, and this is set in in Spain, in, I guess, a little bit in the past, as, as Gothic novels tended to do in, in that period. Mm-hmm. And he is this kind of holier than thou monk who everyone travels from across Spain to kind of listen to his preachings. Obviously, there was no Netflix <laughs> um, in those days. So if you wanted... <laughs> If you wanted to be entertained, um, sermons is a is a kind of good place mm-hmm. together. And also, if you just wanted to hang out with loads of people, then you know the kind of after sermon crowd um, was a was very buzzing, buzzing. Yeah, man, it was popping off. But obviously, you know, what does this have to do with the Gothic? Well, if you are the devil, everything, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and you're you're seeing this person who claims to be like the you know the most holy, the mm-hmm. most pure. Um, you're going to think, great challenge accepted. Let's tempt this guy, um, and that is essentially what the the main plot is about. So yeah, I won't give too much away, but I will I will say that the devil does feature in it at yeah. some point, and also in the kind of secondary narrative, there is also. Probably, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, what what is my favorite ghost? It, it's in this novel. Your number one ghost. My number one ghost, and that is the bleeding nun. The bleeding nun, and is literally the ghost of a woman who is dressed as a nun. She is an atheist. She is a murderer, and she also really loves to have sex. So, <laughs> you know, I just think she's she's fabulous. Um, things also to mention about this book. Not only did Radcliffe hate this book and specifically Lewis's portrayal of Ambrosio loads of other people hated this book as well so much so that it was debated in parliament Mm -hmm. so yes I am being a bit of a basic bitch in choosing (laughs) Matthew Lewis's The Monk but it is so good and it's got everything that you want it's got sex it's got murder it's got incest it's got the devil um everything 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 now as I mentioned I am being sneaky. This is a two for one. Um, So I'm also going to recommend as a kind of continuation of this. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, Anne Radcliffe's (laughs) The Italian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
So um, this was written very, very quickly after The Monk was published. You'll notice the similarities in the titles, mm-hmm. The Monk and The Italian. And this features Radcliffe's, as you say, clapback to Lewis, the the kind of the title figure antagonist in it is a monk called Shadoni, um, who is basically Radcliffe is like, I hate everything that you've done with <laughs> Ambrosio. He's awful. I'm gonna show you how to write an evil monk. So yeah, it's it's basically there's no there's no supernatural in Mm-mm. this book. So this isn't a spoiler. Um, the devil doesn't feature in this book, but that's kind of on purpose. So you can see, you know, what um, what Radcliffe is is yeah. doing in there. So I would definitely check those out. And also, actually, just to be extra sneaky, because I have been really sneaky, this is actually a three for one. This is a three for one. <laughs> so, so... All the rules. <laughs> I've broken all the rules. <laughs> because I'm also going to recommend to you um, <laughs> Zafloya. By Charlotte Dacre. I nearly picked Zafloya and I didn't because I thought it might be on your list. Yeah. And then I was thinking to myself, I could have picked Zafloya. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but also I you know, this is this is uh yeah, this is a three for one. You know, I, I just like sharing gothic um recommendations. <laughs> um but yeah, so this so the monk was published in 1796. I think the Italian was published in 1797 or quite soon after then. Zofloya was published in 1806 and it's written by um, another um, woman writer called Charlotte Dacre. And unlike Radcliffe, Charlotte Dacre absolutely loves the monk. She loves Matthew Lewis. She loves all the characters in it. And she even creates a, a kind of pen name for herself, Rosa Matilda, which is based on one of the characters from the monk. And this is again her version of the monk so i think these are these are the same kind of novel it's all kind of variations kind of yeah it's kind of like a three course meal yeah like i like that yeah (laughs) there's Mm. definitely a benefit to reading these three in tandem to each other because one thing that i do love about these three novels in combination is that they really really challenge two big things that Mm -hmm. the gothic has often fallen foul of which is this essentializing of the idea of the female gothic but also of the anti the gothic as being anti-catholic yeah because these three novels in succession of each other they really complicate this very binary concept that there is a male gothic and a female gothic and that the gothic is always very anti-catholic very pro-protestant very anti-superstition because when Radcliffe claps back, she kind of rejects her own previous seeming anti-Catholicism mm-hmm. yeah. and says, no, 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 it's more complicated than that. These people aren't evil because they're Catholic. They're evil because within this system, there is corruption. And within this system, bad people have been able to have corruption because there are good Catholic characters that I would say are not honorary protestants in that novel but there's also the fucking spanish inquisition (laughs) and then obviously with dacre you get this complete deconstruction of the idea that when women write gothic it's something very different to when men write gothic yeah i love zafoya because i i i like you and i think like quite a lot of us i really i'm really irritated by these kinds of terms of you know these binary terms like male gothic and female gothic because i think they're essentializing in a way that is unnecessary and also not true 
Yeah, hundred percent. And I think what you get with what you get with Sofloya is is something that is so so similar to what you mm-hmm. get in Lewis in that it, it it's drawing on that kind of lasciviousness, yeah. um, that horror, that um, you know physicality and, and fleshliness and and that yeah grossness gross. almost and and carnality yeah. that you maybe don't get in the same way yeah. in Radcliffe but then there were also lots of men writers who wrote like Radcliffe did one thing just to finish on with Zofloya is like as as I said like it's very much in the kind of like Matthew Lewis monk school of of thought and if you read if you get this far if you read the monk and then you read the Italian and you finish the Italian and you're like, that was great, but I wish <laughs> I wish there was the devil. Yeah. Zofloya has you covered yeah. because she, she puts the devil back in. She you to the devil. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. if you if yeah. you are new to the gothic and you're listening to this because you're like, oh, I would like some gothic recommendations. When we talk about male and female gothic, we're talking about this very outdated idea that women only wrote a certain type of gothic that we now tend to call terror gothic because there are two distinct genres they they obviously Mm. overlap and they speak to each other um but there's this idea that when women write gothic it's you know the black veil's never fully lifted and there's there's only ever the threat of violence and there's only ever you know oh maybe this bad thing could happen and it's all about sensibility and heroes and heroines and then when men wrote gothic it's violent and it's sexual and it's it's horror gothic and that is not the case there are plenty of authors in you know in both camps and also of course that just kind of reconstructs the gender binary and the idea that there are only there's only two types of gothic and there's only two genders and from the earliest of gothic that has not been the case there has never been two types of gothic and there's never been two genders and I think we are you know as not only an academic community but as a pop culture community and a culture uh, we're very much moving away from that but um, yeah, if, you, if you've if you not heard those terms before, that's what we're talking about when we say male and female gothic. And that's why we don't like those terms. Um, and I, yeah, <laughs> the book I'm about to re- recommend will further cement the fact that they're a bit useless because my recommendation is Francis Latham's The Midnight Bell, which was published in 1798. Mm. So around the same time. And Latham potentially knew Lewis. Um, you know, society at this point is quite small, particularly literary and political society. So, um, and if you think about like the landed gentry, like everybody knew each other. But Latham is a really interesting character. He kind of disappears partway through his life and lives in this like remote um, village up north and kind of leaves public society. I'm not going to go too into why that possibly is because we don't have a lot of biographical information. And whilst I think sometimes yeah. it's very positive to talk about the potentials of an author's sexuality, when we have so little about how they identified, and there's also potentially some very unpleasant stuff that happens to Latham, I wouldn't feel right kind of saying like, oh, this is this is definitely a gay author. But what I will say is this is definitely an author that is very interested in even in 1798, deconstructing ideas of gender and sexuality. Um, now, the Midnight Bell, <laughs> you might recognise the name because it's one of the uh, horrid novels in Jane Austen's list in Northanger Abbey. So it appears alongside um, things like The Orphan of the Rhine um, by Eleanor Sleeth and novels by Eliza Parsons. And it's very much, a couple of the novels on that are 
<laughs> they're not actually German Gothic because they're not by German writers. One of them is. One of them pretends to be and it's not. But there was this trend towards the late 1790s of German Gothic. German Gothic was a bit darker. Mm. Um, you know, it did delve a little bit deeper into ideas of things like incest but incest where you know an uncle is trying to marry his niece because of political power and the way that people can abuse relationships to take away someone's agency and things like that so like in the orphan of the Rhine I think it is also very um the German kind of tradition was obsessed with secret societies or the way that secret societies were perhaps influencing governments and politics, um, but also um, Faust um, and those kinds of like the influence of the devil and those kinds of deals and stuff. So we think of stuff like Goethe, um, he he was writing Faust in in this kind of period. And and you have lots of like kind of German authors. Um Schubert's another really good example. And um oh man, who wrote the Armenian? I forget. I'm not very good with my names on the German authors. Yeah. But the author of the Ar- Armenian um is also really um good example of this kind of um yeah. this German school. It's very it like it shares a lot of similarities with the British school. And actually the British school mm. starts to appropriate things out of it, which is why we get this sudden burst of novels like Castle Wolfenbach, like Orphan of the Rhine, like um, Midnight Bell, that are set in Germany. Because Germany is still quite an interesting place at this point. You know, it's not a country, really. It's, you know, lots of different country states. And if you think about it in context of the Napoleonic Wars, 1798, we're moving to the end of the Revolutionary Wars. We're approaching Napoleon's coup. It's a falling empire at this point in time. I will also say, like Matthew Lewis, again, you know, friends with um, friends with your author, but also, you know, friends with like the Shelleys and uh, Byron and all this kind of stuff. He 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 essentially became like a kind of foreign ambassador um, because he spoke so many languages and he spent quite a long period in Germany. And I think even the period before he published The Monk, he was in mm-hmm. Germany. And some of the some of the bits in The Monk like the bleeding nun are taken from yeah. german legends and folklore and actually just as a fun fact um he translated goethe's faust for yeah. byron um because he spoke german fluently yeah. and sometimes in in like england if you didn't speak german you couldn't read german then you couldn't you couldn't understand or read yeah. these texts and byron, byron couldn't but byron knows faust <laughs> because lewis read it to him So the Midnight Bell is very much in this Germanic tradition. Um, It doesn't do what some of the texts at this point of time did, which was pretend to be a translation. Because the German Gothic reintroduced the translation trope because not a lot of people could speak German because French had been the language. We're now at war with France. France is inaccessible. Germany was accessible. So all of a sudden, it's also... On and off, I won't go into the complicated politics of all the many wars of the coalitions, of which I think there were seven or eight. But at this point, Prussia, the Holy Roman Empire, the Germanic states, largely are Britain's allies. So there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of trade. So the Midnight Bell doesn't do the kind of found manuscript thing. But what it does do, really interestingly, is pick up the Radcliffian Gothic. So Latham, this male author, is writing very much in the female Gothic, so to speak. 
Um, and this is a this is a weird book. So this was one of those where like I love this book. It's not well written. <laughs> and you might be thinking, Lauren, we've asked you for recommendations for some of your favorite or best gothic books. Why are you recommending this book? It's still a great book because when you read it thinking about like what's going on with the gothic, what's going on in the context of Europe, this book is fascinating. So the protagonist Adolphus is this kind of lost young man who's been displaced who is kind of wandering across Europe, who, you know, maybe his uncle's killed his dad, he doesn't know. And you as the reader, you're like, is this a Hamlet story? There's a ghost, you know, potentially. And at one point, he's a soldier. And you have this very interesting relationship with his Italian commander um, that I think you can really read through... Mm. Not, not even just a homoerotic lens. It's doing something very in- interesting as well with just male friendship, homosexual, and male, yeah, male homosocial relationships that the earlier sentimental novels definitely do, and I think the Italian does do this as well. You do have, but not always. It's often a master-servant friendship. It's not often two men who would like die for each other, so to speak. So he has this really close relationship with his Italian commander and the Italian is important because at this point in time, Italy is seen as being this, you know, hot-blooded, salacious, exotic place. Um, He finishes his career in the army, the war ends. He ends up working in a mine. When he's working in the mine, a a nobleman comes to visit the mine and um, the nobleman's servant who the nobleman is like, this is my servant. He's served me for 20 years. He's my best friend. Falls down the man, dies. Yeah. And then he's like, I'll be your servant. And what's really interesting about this is then the nobleman dies about two pages later. Death in this novel happens very quickly. It happens without pomp. It happens without any real... It's very much like... It's a very interesting look at how death figures in narratives. And when you think about a war, you know, a wartime novel, the frequency of death and the way that death is responded to as just kind of like an unfortunate part of life sometimes is really interesting. What I do love about books of this period that maybe aren't as as polished as, say, a Radcliffe or, or even a mm. Lewis is that you can still enjoy the narrative. And so... Yes. Just as an aside, I've been watching all of the Omen films. Um, oh, and, yeah. Um, the first three, which a lot of people, you know, think of think of them as a trilogy, they're they're great. The pacing's quite slow, but it's just because mm-hmm. you know they were made in the seventies, the eighties, that kind of thing. The fourth one, yeah, was a TV movie, and it feels like that because the pacing yeah. is so fast, so much happens. The editing is. Yeah so different from the other three and you can just really get that feel of like the pacing and the narrative is is different and in some ways that yeah that makes it bad (laughs) Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not enjoyable so I think like with some of these like early gothic texts that you know aren't as necessarily well written you can still enjoy them and 
having these like ridiculous things happen like I remember one book that I was reading and it's like he's this the protagonist has just got married and he's taking his wife to another city and then suddenly on on route she sticks her head out of the carriage and then it topples over and then she dies and then and then it's like oh okay are we just moving on um yeah but it's very much that kind of like telling over TV ah. movie that you can still yeah. you can still like enjoy even if you like this is yes. so odd and um, it has this really interesting so so the thing that I really enjoy about this novel is I think it does something very interesting with masculinity which is of course why I was yeah. drawn to it but for the most part Adolphus is the main character it does switch focus later on to the woman that he marries. I'm not going to spoil the plot because it is quite convoluted. It also has a secret, potential secret society. It. it includes escaping the Bastille. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And there's some very strange and interesting things going on with gender, class, race, criminality, um, heritage. But Adolphus is like, he's useless. But he's not useless. Like, he's a talented soldier. He's a good worker. But he's kind of just, like, can't find his way, can't find his place. When he does get married, he, he you know, because of circumstances outside of his control, he can't protect his wife. He then falls sick. Like, all of these things happen to him. And it's a very interesting kind of look at a hero who is just kind of, like, a lost soul, a lost puppy. Yeah, he's not useless in the way that Valancourt is useless, where you're like, oh my God, sh- fuck up Valancourt. He's useless in this way of like, the yeah. world has told me I'm meant to do a certain job and be a certain way, but I've been displaced and nobody has given me the tools or the direction that I need. Yeah. Like I've kicked out of my my home before I finished maturing and now I'm out in the world and I don't know what the world expects of me. And every time I try to do something that the world expects of me, something happens or it goes wrong and I have to then find something else like outside of my control, which I think is a really interesting take on masculinity at a time where so many young men are going off to war, they're coming back injured or they're coming back and they're like, well, I can't be a farmhand anymore because I watched people die yeah but also I've been trained to do this so you know I no longer fit into my society but my you know my right society's told me I have a rightful role and then it's taken it away from me so from that perspective it's really great the other thing is of course as it must it has another internal narrative so within the text you have the hermit's narrative so the heroine Um, is kidnapped by this local lord who's like really jealous and wants you know wants to have her she manages to escape she ends up at this hermit's house when I say house it's like a cave it's literally a mossy cave and he tells her this really interesting story about how he came to be a hermit and again I don't want to spoil it because it is a really interesting story but there's some really fascinating gender and sexuality stuff that goes on within that narrative but also within the way that the narrative is told because it's the hermit male hermit telling the narrative to this young woman and then the power and dynamic in the novel kind of shifts from that point on it's just a great text it's not that long um I think you can get it for free on kindle or you can buy it from Valencore Press oh love it um and because you picked more than one I will say if you read it and enjoy it I would also recommend getting the other well 
I say the other, quite a lot of novels were published in 1798. 1798 was one of the most prolific years for Mm. Gothic publishing. But the other one I would recommend alongside it, and I have recommended this before, is Regina Maria Roche's Claremont, because that also does something not quite as extreme as Dacre, but whereas Francis Latham is writing in a very, I would say, female Gothic um, way, as we would expect, and therefore that deconstructs challenges and basically proves the binary to be useless. That is one of the most shocking, violent novels within that Radcliffian gothic genre I've ever read. It's got murder, it's got spousal abuse, it's got f- like familial backstabbing and double crossing. Um, the servant is not who they say they are and is not to be trusted and there's all of this strange stuff going on and the violence very you know very much is present the heroine manages to avoid a lot of it but it's there in the text and the people she loves and she respects and cares about have seemingly done terrible things and it's such an anxious novel because the she doesn't like the the main character Madeline she doesn't know what's going on she can't find out the truth because everything's hidden from her. So you don't know it either. And it's a really like claustrophobic, anxious novel. It doesn't do the Radcliffian thing where she's looking over, you know, top down. And often, you know, like in Udolpho, we know where Valancourt is. We know that this thing is happening. We know that Emily is going to be safe. Like there's things that are hinted or we get a second perspective. Like while this was happening... This was happening to this character. You don't get that in Claremont. You are standing behind Madeline the entire time. And it's just such a worrying, anxious novel. So many terrible things happen, but it's not, it's been dismissed as a Radcliffian imitator. I really don't think it is. I think it's very, very well written. And I actually think even though all these terrible things happen, they're all fucking believable. Yeah. There's a couple of bits where you're like, what that happen? But there's this whole thing about jealousy between two brothers, one of whom is illegitimate, one of whom is legitimate. Um, There's, you know, a woman who is tricked into, multiple people tricked into false marriage. A lot of the things that happen are super believable. It's a great gothic novel. But yeah, if you're interested in, um, you know, the the fact that even in 1798, people were rejecting this idea of there being gendered gothic in that negative way, those two novels go really nicely together. So yeah, Francis Latham's The Midnight Bell and Regina Maria Roche's Claremont, my in my opinion, the two best novels of 1798. <laughs> and I will I will just say now, um, excellent choices, obviously. Thanks. <laughs> if you read any of these books um that we recommend and you enjoy them, then let us know. But also like yeah. if you have any like just just while we take like a a little pause after like our, our early gothic mm-hmm. period like if you have any early gothic texts that you think this is a great novel and more people should read it then you know comment on wherever youtube twitter whatever podcast yeah but on spotify i think you can ask yeah. a question like tick please do give send us your recommendations as well yeah or you can as we've said contact us by a seance sometimes the signal's a bit faulty if it doesn't work, yeah. you can always send us an email. As a backup. <laughs> yeah. As a backup. Yeah, yeah, maybe just let us know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so moving away from the classique period, what's your... I'm going to say contemporary. 
I guess this would count as contemporary. It's not, um, I decided not to go for a 21st century novel. I've also not gone for a 21st century novel. Yeah, this is a text that is written in the 20th century, but it's, it's one of one of my absolute favourites. Um, and I just think that it is, I just think everyone should read it, basically. Um, so, and also, don't worry, I've just got one text. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna do a I'm not gonna do a switch on you. Um so I am recommending again, um apologies um for everyone listening, but if you are watching on YouTube, you can have a look at the cover. Octavia Butler's Kindred. I love that book. So yeah, Octavia Butler's Kindred, which was published in 1979. So I love Octavia Butler. I think everything that she writes is amazing. Um but I really love this book because I think mm-hmm. it's a really interesting kind of gothicy sci-fi time travel thing that you maybe might not be expecting um and obviously as we know like you know gothic fantasy sci-fi they all have strong roots in women's right writers yeah um and i also think that it's, it's it's just great to think you know when we talk about early gothic texts we're often like speaking about like mm-hmm. white authors and it's nice obviously there are contemporary authors who were writing gothic who, who were not white one thing that like especially when you move into like the 20th and 21st century in terms of like the mainstream there's more texts that are written by by black authors and other other kinds of groups that I think Uh just really enriches like the gothic um and yeah I like Kindred because I think it does something really interesting with time travel yeah so I don't really want to spoil it, but I guess I'm going to have to spoil it a little bit. But basically the premise of it is we have the main character, Dana, who is kind of in the contemporary 1970s period. She is black um, and her partner is white um, and he's Kevin. And suddenly she starts experiencing like this kind of dizziness. And then she ends up in the in basically antebellum Maryland, um, which was during the period of of slavery and she is there and she keeps having these periods where she's she's time traveling essentially Mm -hmm. she goes dizzy she time travels back in time which i think more people need to explore you know time travel we often think about you know going forwards Mm -hmm. obviously there is a classic back to the future um whatever but i think you know it's it's i think more people should explore going back Mm -hmm. in time and especially periods that we might not necessarily think of in terms of time travel, yeah. she goes back and she it, she genuinely experiences what it's like to be an enslaved person. A lot of particularly women's writing, and again, I want to mm. be really clear that this is not to say that romance is anyway a lesser genre. Um, but a lot of women's writing, when it does use time travel, it often is in more of the romance genre. Mm. And often the romance genre and the gothic genre have massive overlaps, Um and, and complement each other very, very well. They kind of come from the same genesis. And romance gothic, like things like Outlander, do acknowledge the dangers of when you, you know, if you as a Wonder Woman were go, to go back in time, these are the dangers you would face. But it is often through a romance lens, and mm. it is also often very white. Um, and the thing that I really loved about Kindred is it makes you anxious as a reader because of mm. what it does with time travel. Yeah. As well as using it to tell a lot of slavery narratives that we get are very like either white saviory or they're, you know, to to make white people go, oh, that was so terrible. Like, and there's not to say that I'm not part of that. Like, I definitely used to watch things like The Help and be like, what a beautiful story. 
you know you you don't realize necessarily until you start to track your privilege but just as a reading experience that novel made me feel so anxious in a in that way that you're like oh I loved this made me feel I think what's interesting about it is that in in the same way that quite a lot of um Toni Morrison's works have yeah. a lot of horror in them but the horror is focused on black bodies in this is the hor- this is the the real horror of slavery and I think you get that in Kindred where it's like this is the horror the horror that that Dana is both a witness to but also then experiences so she kind of she goes back and then you know she goes backwards and forwards and mm-hmm. she can't control her time travel and she goes back and and basically it's all centered on her ancestors who you learn one of which is a kind of um he starts off as a boy but he is essentially a slave owner a master and he's white and then one of the enslaved women on on the plantation um who is black um so you have rufus and alice and she is connected to rufus and, and periods where his life is in danger um so it's almost like she's connected to him mm-hmm. and before that before I guess her ancestry is kind of established and there's a lot of kinds of questions and anxieties you know what do I you know what do I do here which you find in loads of time travel stuff you know should I change the past that will have irrevocably you know will irrevocably change I can't remember what the paradox is called but there's a paradox in kind of like theoretical Mm. time travel science and writings about sort of meeting your own ancestors mm. and would you cease to exist and what would happen to you and you know all of all of this kind of stuff and then Kindred does a really good job as well of then using that to flip the um oh what's, it's not the white savior thing it's and it's not quite white is it white knight like you feel sympathy at first for Rufus and you kind of think oh he's gonna be like the one good guy that is just a victim of his society and then he's really like not to be a spoiler but this book is not rose tinted it's also you know it's not rose tinted i don't think you can do that but it also it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending it has an ending it's not exactly happy but then it's very real it's also one of these things that it's very real um but it's kind of like you you know no we can't change the past Mm -hmm. let's look to the future which I guess yeah. is one of, you know, time travel. And, and it's yeah. also what the Gothic does. But the Gothic has always been really interested in kind of time and these like kind of temporal yeah. and geographical kind of distances. And I think that's what makes this this novel really interesting is that like you do have, she's basically, without being able to control it, she is thrown both to a different geographical space, but also yep. to a dif- different temporal space. And she just has to deal with it. Um, and it's yeah it's just yeah which is that in of itself is such Mm. a clever and scary like convention because usually when we have superpowers which obviously like the superhero genre but also within the gothic like we have a lot of you know like the Jean Grey narrative of can't control the power but usually that is like the power is too big or it needs to be controlled with and it's often tropes around self-control and around self-knowledge and and it's not usually that you will be accidentally putting yourself in danger it's like you're gonna hurt the people around you this totally rejects that and it's kind of like it's not necessarily a power it's not necessarily a gift it's just this 
horrible fucking thing that keeps happening to you and you can't really work out. It's so scary. I think, yeah, that's such a good way. It just keeps happening to you. And I think that that is why this is such a good time travel book because it's like, what if you don't have, you're not in control of your, Mm -hmm. you're not in control of your past. You're not in control of where you've been. And sometimes you're not even in control of where you're going. Or how you came to be. I read it knowing that it was a time travel book about antebellum slavery but when I read it I was just completely blown away and it's so well written and it's just so interesting and fascinating and horrifying um but yeah I think it's a good book it's a good book I also would say if you are a sci-fi fan um her sci-fi particularly like her short stories are really Mm. really good some of them I I think there's always she's a bit like Toni Morrison not to essentialize because (laughs) not to be like oh yeah these two black authors are the only two people talk about but like Toni Morrison I think the gothic really informs a lot of Butler's writing in terms of Mm. she's like okay I'm going to use this as a linchpin that all of you motherfuckers are going to understand when you read it and then I'm going to do something different with it her sci-fi is really really good yeah I really enjoy it and some of it makes you go oh (laughs) <laughs> and I also, I also think that sometimes like sci-fi and fantasy are often co-opted um yes and and it's like sci-fi and fantasy can only mean or can only be good when it's written by men or written for men and I think that this is a really good example like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein of mm-hmm. women writing sci-fi but also the interconnections of sci-fi and gothic and that how these have always been open to women and also to you know to to other kinds of groups you know to to black women and you know any any basically these things are not just for white men I think if you if you are someone who likes the gothic potentiality Mm. and the way that gothic makes potential an anxious thing then looking for sci-fi, starting with things like Shelley's short stories, going into things like The Island of Dr. Moreau, into things like Butler. Um, there's some really, really upsetting, in a good way, Japanese um, mm. and Korean science fiction short yeah. stories. And more recently, things like um, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, you know, she does this kind of thing. And N.K. Jemisin and N.K. Jemison. Yeah. She has a, bro- a series called Broken Earth that does this very similar type of thing where it's like just familiar enough that you're like, okay, I'm in, I get it, you don't need to law dump on me, but then unsettling and weird enough that you're like, oh, no, what's happening? I don't like it. <laughs> but in that way that, you know, that's why we read gothic and watch horror movies. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love I love that novel. Good pick. Thank you. I now am going to be a massive hypocrite. <laughs> Because I gave you shit for picking three books and I'm about to recommend three books. Oh, wow. You know, it's all coming out now, isn't it? Listen, though, mine are all by the same author and they're a trilogy. Okay, well, you know. From technically, they're not all by the same author because I'll get into that. <laughs> Before I moved into the cave, yeah. those of you that watch on YouTube might remember that there was a portrait of a man behind me who looked very intense. And that man was Mervyn Peake. And my recommendation is the Gorman Gas trilogy. I am shocked. <laughs> I know, I bet you could never see this coming. I do have to confess, though, I still have not read the Gorman Gas. So this is why I wanted to recommend them. Because actually, as much as in a way they are very popular and they are, I would say, part of the canon, you know, they're still 
on the more unknown side. They're still on the more niche side. I feel like they haven't had, they had a brief surge of popularity again in the early 2010s when there was an anniversary. Um, And uh, if you too were a college-aged, university-aged student in the late 20, in the late noughties and early 2010s here in the UK, then you might remember the singer Jack Pinata, who is the grandson of Mervyn Peake. Uh, I love that fact because I liked them both. But yeah, I actually don't think, I don't think Gormenghast is as well known as I sometimes think it is, um, which is why I decided to recommend it. Because I was like, well, maybe people aren't aware of it. So Ian, you mean this... this isn't just part of your crusade to get me to read them? Like... <laughs> it's my crusade to get everyone to read them, Mary. Because <laughs> yeah, I am a Mervyn Peake super fan. <laughs> like, I wrote my undergrad dissertation on Mervyn Peake. Um, I don't know if you can see if you are on YouTube just here. This is a Folio Society edition that I just picked up in an Oxfam bookstore in Bath. I will not say how much they were because my mum will be listening. <laughs> they weren't that expensive, mum. That are illustrated and actually not by him, but he also was an illustrator. So Peak actually was raised in China for his early life. His parents were, um, his dad was a doctor. And they were missionaries, which is always a little bit icky, but they were more medical missionaries um, than religious missionaries. He had a very interesting childhood growing up in this increasingly international metropolitan area of China. Um, They then left and came back to England and he studied art and he was friends with people like Dylan Thomas. Um, He met his wife Maeve and he for a while was like the artist in residence for the Isle of Sark. Um, he illustrated things like Alice in Wonderland. Um, he did a Treasure Island. Um, he did a version of the Hunting of the uh, of the uh, Snark. He also did um, a version of Jabberwocky. These very dark, weird line illustrations. But he was originally a painter, and essentially, Peak applied to be a war artist. So in the Second World War. He was a war artist and what he was mostly interested in was destruction. He saw a lot of these ruined streets in Germany of wounded people and soldiers and that really massively affected him. So he comes back and he writes a novel called Titus Grown. Um, So Titus Grown is the first one in the series and (laughs) Gormenghast is basically, Gormenghast is the castle. So Gormenghast is this huge, sprawling, endless Gothic castle. And the groans are the family within the castle. And the novel is essentially about when ritual becomes pointless. So they have all of these things that the Earl of Gormenghast, so Titus Groan, it starts with him being born. He's the heir to Gormenghast. And they have to do all of these bizarre rituals. And nobody knows why they do these bizarre rituals, but that's what's done. So they do them and no one questions it. The setting is just so strange and you can tell that it's very inspired by his very like eclectic upbringing, his time at art school, his time away, his time as a war artist. And essentially it's a story about this family and the downfall of this family. So there's a character called Steerpike. He is a kitchen boy. He's this very strange kind of like angular young man. He's played by Jonathan Rhys Davies, I think, is the, the guy from Ben and Light Beckham and who played Henry in the Tudors in the BBC adaptation. 
which I think you will be able to find places because it was BBC One. And he is a kitchen boy and he basically doesn't want to be a kitchen boy, but he has to be a kitchen boy because everybody has a role and that's your role and you do your role. And he's like, no, I'm smart, I'm ambitious. And he starts to claw his way up. He's like, I'm going to, you know, ingratiate myself into society. He befriends Titus's older sister, Fuchsia, who is a gothic heroine, but an unfulfilled gothic heroine with no chance to actually ever leave her castle. Um, he, like, ingratiates himself, ingratiates himself with Titus's aunt. He basically becomes, like, an advisor within the castle. And he, him and Titus kind of eventually have this kind of face-off. The castle, you know, floods, all these things happen. And it's sort of like a big gothic rejection of pointless ritual, ritual for no reason, legacy and lineage for no reason about how you find yourself and how you deconstruct. And I think in some ways it does hark back to things like The Monk, because The Monk is essentially a novel about the downfall of a cult leader. Mm, yeah. Like Ambrosio is this adored priest. Everybody's hanging on his every word. He's got nobody to tell him no or rein him in and there's that whole thing about like he should have been a soldier if he'd have been a soldier all of these passions would have been productively channeled but instead he becomes um, a monk and that means that he goes down this path that leads him to corruption and abuse of power and that's kind of what common guess is about but in terms of novels that paint visual pictures you will never read anything like this. I've never read anything and gone, this reminds me of Gormenghurst. <laughs> like, it's such an amazing novel. Um, so it's a series of three. And actually the last one, so Peak had Parkinson's disease in the 40s and 50s and 60s, not very well treated. And unfortunately, during the time he was writing the last novel, Titus Alone, he got more and more unwell and very sadly uh, passed away. So Titus Alone is kind of a semi-unfinished novel. It is finished, but it's kind of a bit Mm. gappy. And then about 10 years ago, they found out that his wife, Maeve, who helped him a lot with his writing and helped him, she was also an artist. Um, She had kind of like rewritten it and like finished Finished it, it, but decided not to publish it. And then the family decided to publish it. so there is actually four novels, but it depends which one you choose to read for the last one. But yeah, that's my recommendation. It will always be my recommendation. <laughs> it's my favourite books. <laughs> I mean, I think it's great. And I love I love how passionate you are about Gormenghurst. And it's it's just, every time you talk about them, I, I learn something new about what you love about them, which is always nice. I, you know, I, I like learning about my friends' passions. Oh, friend. Yeah. I love you too. <laughs> what we will say is if, if you've enjoyed this and if you want us to do more recommendation stuff, then we will be less basic. <laughs> yeah. We'll start. I was like, do I recommend La Vie Vampire? Like one of the fucking weirdest books I've ever yeah. read. But I was like, no, we've been asked for reading recommendations. I'm going to give some good, yeah. solid ones. And then we'll get. I think that's good. It's, and it's nice also, it's also nice to have a trilogy because then like if you if you enjoy the first one then you can carry on and if you don't then that's okay you've read the first one you don't you know yeah exactly exactly there's also a short story uh called the boy in darkness that Mm. kind of goes with gorman gas that if you are a sci-fi dr moreau fan Mm. there's some weird animal shit going on in that book liked that one a lot 
But yeah, that's my recommendation. I feel like we've had quite a quite a mixed bag here, but also a lot of complimentary stuff. I mean, I know we said we might do honorable like honorable mentions, which I think maybe we can still, but if you were to say like in terms of the way you pick your books, like what's your if you see something on a blurb, like a gothic trope or convention and you see it on a blurb, like what's the one that makes you go, I'm gonna read that? So I really love spooky shit. <laughs> what? Um like I think like if you had to describe like what I'm interested uh-huh. in, like just as a catch-all, like I love stuff that's spooky. Um I love watching spooky things, I like reading spooky things. I like having like my aesthetic, you know, the stuff, like the things that I yeah. buy, I like them to be a little bit spooky. And I guess by that, by extension, what I quite like is, I guess, stuff that melds into the supernatural. So supernatural and monsters and things. And what is something doing that's different? I enjoy stuff like Radcliffe. But I think for me, the thing that I really enjoy is let's see how we can push the boundaries of fiction and imagination let's throw the devil in let's throw a ghost in let's do time travel let's have this like vampire Mm -hmm. like I really enjoy the I guess the supernatural and the way that that trope is used differently in in gothic tech well yeah I mean I we both really like Poppy Z. Bright, mm. who is a great example of pushing the boundaries of what yeah. the gothic can do, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Yeah, you like the continuation of the snowball, like what's, yeah. what's the next experimentation or mutation? Yes, I, I, oh yeah, that's another good thing that I, I enjoy, the experimentation. I think that's why I, I, I like the gothic. Yeah. And I think it's why I like stuff parts of sci-fi that I find most interesting are, are the bits that do that I think for me I one thing that will really put me off a book or a film or something is if it is a bunch of men talking about <laughs> talking about men things and it's specifically written for men like I don't I don't know like it <laughs> I sorry it's just I find that really boring because I feel like yeah. I've read that already mm-hmm. and the the stuff that's coming you know whether it's books whether it's films there's nothing new whereas like when you look beyond that whether it's to women white women women of color or um you know queer fiction like I I just think it's like it's just more interesting yes I uh, I don't know yeah it's and it's not to say that I don't enjoy stuff written by men or that features men it's just that it has to do it has to be doing something interesting you know it can't just be like oh here's a film Mm -hmm. it's it's one of the reasons why I'm really glad that people have enjoyed Barbie and Oppenheimer but for me I'm never ever going to watch Oppenheimer because it it just it's it's just doing that thing that I find quite boring which is that it's about men talking about men making bad choices (laughs) making bad choices (laughs) I've read read that I've seen that like not interested thank you I will go and watch Grave of the Fireflies thank you very much oh no yeah oh Grave of the Fireflies I've watched it it's the only Ghibli film that I won't rewatch because yeah it's seared into my mind yeah um yeah yeah, I guess what I've realized thinking about that is like I really like domestic gothic yeah and what I mean by that is like I want to call it low stakes because it's not low stakes for the people in the texts it's big stakes but like 
I'm not so interested in stuff like The Stand, which is like, I do like dystopia and, you know, I I enjoy playing Mm. it and watching it. But within a text, particularly novels, I've realised when, so as you know, because you were there, I wrote my paper for Gothic Women about the evolution of the Gothic heroine from the Radcliffean Gothic through to more recent texts focusing on Sylvia Moreno Garcia's Mexican Gothic. Um, She's a Mexican-Canadian writer, grew up in Mexico City, I think. Or did she grow up in Montreal? I can't remember. But it's a great text. It's a super claustrophobic, Mm -hmm. super creepy, plays with your expectations. But it's a domestic text. I think what I've realised is like, you know, like Claremont. I love these texts that are set in these houses. Yeah. That like, you know, and the home should be, maybe this is not my personal trauma. The home should be this like safe space where like your un- your chosen unit lives within the, the home and the home is your safe four walls. And like texts like Mexican Gothic really disrupt that. The house itself is dangerous. In Gormenghast, the castle is its own character. Udolfo the castle is its own character and Claremont the house has got all these weird things in it like why do you have this in your house as like a countess and what I've really realised is in a lot of these more modern texts I really love stuff where it's like the world continues to turn but for these like six or seven people within this narrative something weird is happening and I think again going because we went to that great panel on Shirley Jackson and I love the haunting of Hill House but also we have always lived in the castle Mm -hmm. which is a really unsettling domestic gothic and I was thinking about it and I was like yeah I love not necessarily haunted house narratives although I, I do but I love these texts that are like all of these things are going on the world is still turning there's still war there's still famine there's still all of these things but within this because it almost makes it worse like it almost makes it scarier and it also make almost makes it when you're like is this happening and would this happen in our modern world and I love how modern gothic like Mexican gothic has managed to reinvigorate that genre and has managed to kind of continue playing with that and I was thinking that when I was reading another Latin um, author Mariana Enriquez I know we both mm. have read her recently and I was reading things we lost in the fire I was thinking like particularly the story about the girl who is back in her family home and Isabella Allende who is not really a gothic writer she's more of a historical romance writer but she does this too where you're like there's this family in this space and the space is yeah is neither good nor evil but is somehow haunted yeah. and yeah I've realized that I think if I if I pick something up and it's like there's this woman and she lives in this house and the house was owned by her great grandfather and there's these things or like she's got to go back I love those things where it's like going back to the place you escaped I'm like oh yeah sign me up that sounds great (laughs) so I think ultimately like we have different tropes I guess that we like but it's all about people Mm -hmm. like we're interested in the people you know like I'm interested in how people respond to being a monster or to encountering a monster or to encountering a ghost or to encountering the devil it's all about that kind of what if you just put the kind of human relationships up to 11 I guess Uh, (laughs) a bit of spookiness how do people interact and for you it's like you know how do people in a domestic setting or in a kind of like small enclosed intimate setting um, not necessarily in relation to like being a house thing but like just a small community or like a, a group yeah. of people how you know yeah and I think that's why as we all know I'm not a big horror fan but the things I do like are things like The Shining, yeah. Wicker Man, Get Out, 
these stories that are like yeah they take place in these confined spaces that are reflective of the world around them I think because you know a lot of my work is like okay this fucking huge war is going on yeah how if you're a young woman living in a village in Hampshire do you deal with that because it it affects you you don't get a say about it you don't get Mm. to be present for it you don't even know if the information that you're getting is true and that translates over to being to being a minority to being in a fake news society you know there's all of these things that like really translate over into modern society that I think the gothic in the last some of the texts of gothic texts have come out in the last few years are Mm. so 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 good yeah because they really dig into that feeling which is why maybe they're the only horror films I could because nothing like yeah. nothing gory happens but that like and some people are like it's the most fucking terrifying thing I've ever seen and I'm like yes but it's the right type of terrifying for me to enjoy yeah I guess we have kind of recommended a few more other things but I just as like one more honorable mention just because I feel like it fits with this kind of thing like I guess when I you know what I was saying you know what I don't like and what I do like what I really like is that inventiveness that I think you get in 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 the gothic Mm -hmm. it allows you to take something that is well established and maybe do it differently or put your own take on it and so my other um well my other honorable mention which I do also have here um which I'm also just going to show you this fabulous um book cover that I have that's amazing so um if you can see this is Octavia Butler again it's another Octavia Butler book and this is the book cover because it came in like a fancy. Came oh, in a fancy box. it comes in a box. It comes in a box. Um, so this is Fledgling <gasps> and this is one of her vampire texts. Yeah. And I have to say, I don't like this as much as I like Kindred. I enjoyed reading this because of its inventiveness. I'm not entirely sold on the the way that vampirism is is presented. But what is really enjoyable is just the way that it's so different. It's so different and it it re- reimagines vampires in mm-hmm. such a unique way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I really like about the trope of the supernatural or monsters is, okay, yeah, anyone can write a story with a vampire. What are you doing that's different? Yes. And I think someone like um, Butler just, she's she just writes so well, but she's also, her like, it's just so imaginative and inventive. I think Butler is one of those, and, and this will be the last thing I say, but I think Butler is in the same vein of people like Angela Carter, mm. and I know I keep mentioning it, but Sylvia Marina Garcia, I think that's yeah. like why they're three authors that like, I'll read anything that you've yeah. written, because they get genre. 100%, yeah, yeah. And then that means they can write in any genre. Like, yeah. they are three writers who have written in, you know, Carter writes everything from fairy tale to weird post-apocalyptic sci-fi. So does Butler, so does Marina Garcia. Like, yeah. they have this ability to... And, and it, I think part of this is, you know, they're very well read. They study literature. They have this amazing skill to understand, like, what makes genre tick. And they bring you in. They're like, hi, okay, you're aware of the genre. You know how the genre works. Cool. I'm going to totally do something different. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. familiar enough that you don't need a big lore dump you don't need a big explanation I don't need to go into the nitty-gritty of how the science behind these vampires work because you get it because you know the genre I'm working in I'm going to subvert your expectations whilst also fulfilling them and you're going to close this book and think shit that was so enjoyable yeah 
Margaret Atwood does this too. She's a little bit less genre focused, although I mean she writes dystopia, um, you know, dystopias. They are authors who I'm like, I pick one of their books up, and by dinner time, I've I've finished them. Like I read uh, Signal to Noise, which is one of Marina Garcia's novels when we were on holiday and I started it in the morning, finished it at night. And Kate was like, have you finished that novel in a day? And I was like, bitch, it was really readable. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. I just, I enjoyed reading it. Like sometimes I think, yeah, that wasn't their best or like not not a literary masterpiece compared to some of them, but damn enjoyable, readable fiction that makes you makes you feel a kind of way and on that note I guess we should say you know if you have any books that makes you feel like that that you want (laughs) more people to read then please do you know send us your recommendations Mm -hmm. or comment or or in you know seance whatever we'll 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 get them and if you don't if you've enjoyed this episode and you want more like this then also yeah like let us know (laughs) because clearly we like books and (laughs) i think we like known about us (laughs) we like talking about them so you know there's loads more that we can recommend yeah and if you'd like us to you know do more deep dives again like the Gore Guide Association has become our main show because the you know the format works it works for us it lets us talk about stuff um and you know just from the way that we make content it was easier but that doesn't mean that every now and then an association can't meet to talk about a specific text and how freaking weird it is you know if you want me to yell at Mary about a video game for an hour give me that give me that reason (laughs) but in the meantime you know where to find us over on uh, social media we are currently still on the sinking ship um we will be there until it becomes paywalled but we're also over on Instagram. Of course, you can follow us on YouTube and on Spotify and other podcast platforms. We're on Apple Music and on Google Play. And in the meantime, everybody, stay safe and stay spooky. Stay safe and stay spooky. Bye.